Dimple Chowdhury and Eric Schwartz have made it their mission to find where lead pipes exist in places like Flint and Newark, New Jersey, and to make sure that people who are poisoned by those lead lines get justice in the court. On this episode of Created Equal, my conversation with National Resources Defense Council Senior Attorney Dimple Chowdhury and University of Michigan Ross School of Business Professor Eric Schwartz. It was founded on the principle We hold these truths to be self-evident That all men are created equal. That all men are created equal. Eric, I'm going to start uh, with uh, you here. Uh, in 2016, University of Michigan researchers developed an algorithm to determine the neighborhoods that are most likely to have lead pipes. And you were one of the researchers. Tell us more about uh, that project. Sure. Well, thanks for asking. The key here was that we recognize that in Flint, and as you've mentioned, other cities, there's a real uncertainty actually about which homes have lead pipes. And and the fact that that's so uncertain, even at the peak of a crisis, should be a bit startling to, mm-hmm. to, to most folks. I had a conversation with someone just the other day about lead pipes here in Detroit and the idea that we don't have any idea which houses in my neighborhood, for instance, have lead pipes and which don't. Yeah, and that's exactly the issue. And, and whether it's in Detroit or, or in other cities that were built a big part in the early to mid-century, 20th century. There was a wide range of materials used. Lead was quite popular. And those construction records, those old historical records, leave a lot to be desired in terms of accuracy. <laughs> they're, they're handwritten. They're waterlogged books. They're, they're just not actually accurate, or they're just missing and incomplete. Mm-hmm. And that missing information is what my colleagues at University of Michigan and I really saw. So, so especially my colleague Jake Abernathy, who's now at Georgia Tech, and, and data scientist Jared Webb, we recognized that just that information alone, labeling every home, does this have lead or galvanized steel versus what's considered safer, copper mm-hmm. service lines, that problem was going to be a many, many, many millions of dollars problem. And so we trained our attention on that and used all the data, and and we're data nerds. We're just (laughs) data scientists here, uh, and used all the information we could to try to predict whether a home actually, in fact, had lead-tainted service lines. Yeah, and what you found was that for every 100 homes, and this is in Flint, that the city had the intention of replacing lines, you determined that 82% actually need replacing. That's a big, that's a big number. Yeah, and I, I, I love the way that you, you use that language very precisely. I appreciate that. <laughs> that doesn't mean that 82% of the city had lead. Right. right. That means that the program, when we were working in 2016 and 17, was pretty efficient. So that when they went to try to remove lead and paid mm-hmm. thousands of dollars per crew, per dig— they were finding lead. And unfortunately, we actually have some good information now that says if you don't use statistical models, that number goes down pretty significantly. So you're digging in places that you're finding not uh, lead, uh, lines that are not lead. Yeah. And, yeah. and there are other ways to do inspections to, to get a wide range of information. So to get a, a sample of homes that would be representative of the city. And, and that's a cheaper inspection. It's not going with the intention of replacing. In that sense, then you want to spread across the whole city. You mm-hmm. want to look at some of the homes that have copper and have lead and have all materials. But when you're going to replace, you want that hit rate to be as close to 100 as possible. Yeah, 
Yeah. Uh, Dimple, uh, talk about the work that you've been doing with co-plaintiffs in Flint about uh, lead pipes and the replacement of lead pipes. Uh, does the city's effort to, to try to finally address this uh, issue impact the, 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 the effectiveness of your suit? In other words, are they doing what you are asking them uh, to do? In large part, they are. You know, the result of our federal lawsuit in Flint that we filed, you know, in partnership with Flint residents and, and community groups um, was that the city had to replace its lead pipes within three years and that the state would provide $97 million for that to happen. And so now we're, we're ending the, the end of the three years of that term. And so we've watched the city, you know, explore or inspect 22,000 homes. They've replaced um, around 10,000 lead service lines. And they have, we think, um, based on on Eric and Jake's model and the great work that they've done, we think the city has around 1,500 homes uh, with lead lines that still remain to be excavated and replaced. And so, you know, there are terms in our settlement and the oversight that it provided that allow us to step in if we think the city um, is not executing this program in a health protective way, in a way that's in the best interest of Flint residents. We can't control everything, mm -hmm. but we've certainly done the best we can to provide a level of of oversight to try to um, increase um, confidence in the program and in increase the efficacy of the program. Yeah. Uh, Eric, uh, you know, we've had these recent changes to the lead and copper rule. Um, does that affect the work that you're doing, the research that you guys are doing at U of M? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that that health protectiveness, I think that Dimple just mentioned, is really critical because if you're thinking about protecting public health here and reducing lead exposure, the big move would be, well, let's reduce the total number of days all residents are living with lead service lines. And the new lead and copper rule in Michigan is really setting that bar high for mm -hmm. other states to follow. And one of the ways that it's doing that is it it is forcing cities, as Dimple said, it was already federal law, but really now enforcing and, and executing this to have inventories. And that really is just information. Mm -hmm. So to have home by home actually verify what are the service line materials in these homes. And when you find that lead or lead-tainted service lines, replace them. Yeah. And so what we're really working with, the cities and, and, and the state, the, the drinking water group in Eagle, EGLE, here in Michigan, is to devise ways to, to do just that, to, to use the data, to use technology, and the expertise of folks that have gone through service line replacements before, right. like the one in Flint, like the one in Lansing, to spread best practices. So, uh, does your research suggest that uh, there are cities that have worse issues with this than we've seen in, in Flint? Uh, uh, we hear a lot of people talk about that Flint is kind of the tip of the spear here in terms of uh, what what's going on with with lead in water, and that we just aren't testing in some places well enough to know. Uh, but does your research suggest that we may have bigger problems elsewhere? The the particular patterns that we're seeing in Flint, we're now seeing in other cities, um, and that's both at the high level, as as Dimple was just describing, at at the legislative and and the policy and the political level, but also at the data level. We've now looked at data from other cities. Uh, across the region, Midwest and Northeast in particular. And yeah, it does look pretty similar. Mm. Um, but the common challenge is still that uncertainty. Yeah. And so the scope of the problem, even starting out, 
how much money should you go and ask your state legislature for? You need to know. You don't know if you don't know how many lead lines you yeah. have. Yeah, and this is a really important point because the federal law in the lead and copper rule actually says you need to remove, set if you exceed at federal action level on the water quality, then you need to remove 7% of all of the lead service lines that you have. But you don't know how many How you do have. you know? <laughs> right. And, and so it's a bit of an oversight in the legislation mm-hmm. from the lead and copper rule that, that says that. So we really need to revise that, yeah. both at the federal and at the state level. Yeah. We can't just be telling people to dig 7% of an unknown number. Right. Right. Uh, Dimple, I I wonder what you make of uh, the current administration's kind of dismantling of the EPA. Uh, Certainly, um, it is a very different agency now than it was just a few years ago. What effect is that having on what you're seeing with clean water in in cities around the I'm Ann Delisi. I'm Rob Reinhardt. And we're about to bring back the perfect opportunity to honor your favorite pet and support WDET. During our spring fundraiser, Ann and I will combine our shows so you can honor your dog. Or your cat. Or your dog. And WDET with a gift of support. We're looking forward to hearing about your pets, no matter what kind of cat that is. Cats and dogs and any other pet you may have will be part of our fundraiser. And if you can't wait till the weekend, make your gift now at WDET.org slash give. Call 800-959-9338. Country. I mean, it's it's deeply, deeply troubling. EPA and state agencies are charged with enforcing the federal laws that protect our drinking water. The Safe Drinking Water Act is there to be enforced by EPA. Um, and when there is a lack of will to empower EPA to do its job, to authorize it, to fund it, um, to do things like run programs that can help with lead service line replacement, provide expertise to local agencies, um, step in when when something goes wrong and take an active um, enforcement and over oversight role, um, it's putting all of us at risk. Mm. Uh, And uh, does that make your work uh, in the courts, uh, for instance, tougher as well? Um, It makes our work both more challenging and also, I think, much more important. Right Mm. now, citizens are the last line of defense. If you don't have the will to enforce or the ability to enforce at the federal level or at the state level, then what we have are citizens who, you know, thankfully, these laws were drafted with, you know, many layers of protection in mind. And so citizens can step in and say, hey, you are not protecting my drinking water. That is what we did in Flint. That's what we're doing in Newark. Um, And that becomes increasingly important when you have um, failure at the state and federal level. Yeah. Uh, Eric, I wonder if you can give us an idea of how big a task it would be to apply the work that you did in Flint statewide. In other words, for us to really look into, all right, uh, where are there lead lines that need to be replaced? And we're going to find them all over Michigan. Yeah, we're, we're, we're on that path. Yeah. So uh, through conversations, what we're trying to do is uh, spread the, these best practices. And so with another group at, at the University of Michigan and in the water center there, uh, we're, we're developing really a toolkit uh, in, in conjunction with, with, with the state at, to spread these best practices, both in terms of just what data do you need? What data do you want to collect? And in a perfect world, how would you then use, say, statistical models to, to get best guesses at how many do you have citywide system-wide and down to the neighborhood and down mm-hmm. to the home level. And so what we're doing is creating those kind of educational materials. It's one of the things, at least within U of M, that we do okay yeah. <laughs> uh, is, is, is create materials and educate. And uh, we hope that's one path to spreading. But I would also say that in the absence of 
bigger federal funding and in the absence of bigger state legislature funding, which all of which should be happening mm-hmm. and really needs to, and it relates to the discussion you were having about roads, mm-hmm. we're all going to pay for that somehow, some way, either as customers or as taxpayers. There's a lot of creativity uh, potential for local authorities, uh, for financing, for finding ways to do cost sharing between customers and and utility companies and, and public entities, to find ways to create those incentives so that, yeah, there might be a way for a public-private partnership where health protective measures are aligned with the government and also aligned with local business. Okay, Dimple Chowdhury and Eric Schwartz, it was really great to have you here for this conversation. Thanks for being here. Thanks so much. On the next episode of Created Equal, we'll hear from the local Flint journalist who was covering the water crisis from the very beginning. Why was it done in the first place? It was done to save money, which we see what happened. It ended up costing hundreds of millions of dollars in damage instead. I guess the way I try to approach it is trying to get to the bottom of this, which we've gotten a lot of answers, but uh, there's still a lot that I think we don't know about it. Created Equal is a production of WDET, Detroit's NPR station. Our executive producer is Joan Cherry Isabella. Our producers are Elena Fruget, Jake Neer, and Anna Marie Seisling. Our sound engineers are Matt Trevethan, Rowan Niamisto, and Rasan Cherry. Senior editor and musical composer is Sam Bobian. Our digital and social media team is Maida Stangi, Shiraz Ahmed, and Tony Brown. I'm your host, Stephen Henderson. <laughs>